coming up in this episode. Another terror attack in Britain. Hello, um, I'm currently on uh, London Bridge at the moment. I'm uh, on the right-hand side, facing away from the Shard. Um, about 10 minutes or so ago, a white van driver um, came speeding, probably about 50 miles an hour, veered off the road into the crowds of people that were walking, uh, pedestrians walking along the pavement. After a vehicle attack, then the terrorists began stabbing people. The panic in the borough market area was palpable. They are going into, hang on! They are going into buildings looking for people, okay? You are all clumped together in a place with no exit route, okay? You are victims waiting to happen. I'm trying to keep myself safe. A detailed look at what happened, and we talked one-on-one with Europol's head of the European Counterterrorism Center about their big challenge. My challenge is to be faster. We have seen how the terrorists became faster, how they easily assembled the means and eventually uh, uh, perpetrated the terrorist attacks. Manuel Navarati, head of the Europol European Counterterrorism Center, breaks down the plan moving forward for dealing with terrorism in Europe. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP. In Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. On Sunday, June 3rd, Britain was rocked by another terror attack, this time on its iconic London Bridge. A vehicle mowed down people as they walked along the bridge about 10 o'clock p.m. It was sheer panic as one might expect. A mobile phone caller on the BBC explained what happened. Yes, hello. Um, I'm currently on uh, London Bridge at the moment. I'm uh, on the right-hand side, facing away from the Shard. Um, About 10 minutes or so ago, a white van driver um, came speeding, probably about 50 miles an hour, veered off the road into the crowds of people that were walking, uh, pedestrians walking along the pavement. Um, He swerved right around me and then hit uh, about five or six people. Uh, He hit about two people in front of me and then three behind. Um, I'd say there's at least four uh, severely injured people. Uh, They all have paramedics assisting them at the moment. Um, There's about 20 armed police on the bridge at the moment. Uh, I'm unaware as where the van driver has gone now. It was a white transit van with one solo male driver. Um, uh, One of the victims uh, was a French lady. After the vehicle attack, three men got out and ran to nearby restaurants and began stabbing people. This was the scene outside of a restaurant in the borough market as police tried to persuade scared patrons to make a run for it instead of hiding there. Are you giving me home? 
Right. Are you getting me home? If you get me home safe, I'll you know. follow you. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, I'm gonna what about you. we go out and we go out and we go out and we go we are chasing suspects around London who want to kill people. They are going into hang on! They are going into buildings looking for people. Okay? You are all clumped together in a place with no exit route. Okay? You are victims waiting to happen. All right. Get your stuff and get out of the danger zone. All right, all right. Now. Now. Just, just give me one minute. I leave in just, just give me one minute. No. I'm no. not going to take you home. I'm going to take you out of the danger so area. Okay, Guys, 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 guys. Guys, guys, why don't we just trust? Why don't we just. Wait. Guys. Wait, wait, wait. We, we can, we can take, we can take you home. Yeah, I can take right. you home. All right. I can, I can take you home. Let, guys, guys, guys. Let's just trust. Let's just, guys. Let's just trust that they're doing the safest thing for us. All right. And later, police caught up with the attackers. I'm trying to keep myself safe. That attack, which dominated the headlines, was not the only one of the day. There were five others in India, Iraq, Algeria, Afghanistan, and Mexico. Another 24 people died. But the attack in London got a lot of attention because of the symbolism of the bridge and because of the many promises that the Islamic State organization had made about attacking London. Nikita Malik a senior research fellow with the Henry Jackson Society in London, spoke with me about the impact of the attack, both from a symbolic perspective and on an emotional level. It was an ex extremely um, stressful and uh, a very difficult time uh, for this to have happened in London, particularly after, uh, so closely after the attack in Westminster. One thing that was troubling was the scale of the attack that three individuals were involved and they use the same methods uh, as the person in Westminster, the use of a van plus um, knives, which were very easily available. And, and as the news was coming through to us, one of the things uh, we noticed was, was the methods and, and also the fact that not just Islamic State, but also terrorist organizations such as Al-Qaeda have actively called out for these groups, uh, for extremist groups, um, to to use whatever wh whatever means are available to them to attack during the holy month of Ramadan. So, because as this is the month of Ramadan, the attacks are escalating. But we never thought that um, these attacks would occur in such quick succession. And I don't think that the the uh, the government and intelligence services thought that either. As as very recently, the threat level was reduced in the UK because a number of uh, very important arrests were made. But we're beginning to see that that simply the scale of this uh, problem is huge. You have not um, thousands, but tens of thousands, twenty thousand people uh, on on a list at the moment um, who are who are potential uh, radicals, violent radicals. So um, my my first reaction to this was one one of um, um, you know mm -hmm. extreme shock, but uh, that it had happened so quickly. Let me ask you about the trade craft that was used, ISIS and. Um other groups have, have have asked sympathizers to to not try to join them overseas, but to stay home, 
and conduct attacks and use whatever they can. And in this case and in other cases, they've turned everyday items into weapons and they've used this uh, low-tech, high-impact approach to launching attacks. Uh, How do you see this working out? This is one of the biggest trends that we've seen uh, is this increase in homegrown terrorism because individuals who cannot go and, and travel to to Syria and Iraq, as you said, very rightly so, are encouraged to do whatever they can and wreck as much chaos as they can in, in the countries in which they live against the kuffar, who are the disbelievers who who are who who are not uh, Muslims. So uh, the, the the period in which these attacks are occurring and the methods are extremely troubling. What what is even more troubling is the level of numbers. So in the United Kingdom, we've had 850 fighters who have gone to travel to Iraq and Syria, of which half approximately 400 to 450 people have returned to the United Kingdom and they are British citizens. They have British passports and they present a real threat to to our society because these are people who are radical enough to actually go and and join uh, to do do this, um, uh, you know, uh, um, join these jihadist groups. Uh, and, And on top of that, you have of course, people who have not joined, but who empathize and believe um, in the cause of, of, of violent ideology. So, so, so this is extremely troubling. One of the main pieces of research we released from the Henry Jackson Society analyzed um, between ni- 1998 and 215, t- 215, all of the attacks, the Islamist-related offenses, of which we had 99 uh, in this period. And what kind of um, mechanisms were used in these attacks, and bombing was the most commonly featured type of attack. There were about that was seventy four percent, and then you also had beheadings and stabbings, as as we've seen in uh, in 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 London recently, but also in Westminster a few months ago, uh, an attempted um, uh, stabbing, which was fifteen percent, and then uh, attacks made by vehicles, which was was just twelve percent. So this is this is unfortunately not something. New. This is something that has been ad- advocated since 1998, first by Islamist groups such as Al Qaeda and normalized by UK based groups such as Al Muhajirun um, and Hizbut Tahrir, who also called for a caliphate. Yeah. And uh, we're seeing it escalated now um, in, in, in the last few months as well. That's Nikita Malik, senior researcher at the Henry Jackson Society in London, analyzing the situation. But what everybody wants to know is what's actually happening on the ground with a terror fight, especially in Europe. So for that, we turn directly to Europol, the European Union's law enforcement agency. Manuel Navaretti is the head of Europol's European Counterterrorism Center. We spoke with him in Washington on June 6th at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and we spoke to him about what's happening, what we can expect, and what Europol's biggest challenges are in dealing with this wave of terrorism that's sweeping Europe. Mr. Navarrete, let me just first begin by asking you your thoughts on the recent terror attacks and the wave of terror that seems to be sweeping Europe. Even now as we're speaking, there's word of something else that's taken place. What are your thoughts about what's happening? But this uh, uh, terrorist phenomenon is very, is very uh, somehow flexible. I think we have suffering from very sophisticated attacks, uh, prepare conceive, prepare, and carry out in a very professional way uh, in Paris and Brussels, very sophisticated with somehow uh, uh, cooperation from foreign fighters to homegrown terrorism. 
and mostly we suffer from this so-called long actor phenomenon. Uh, the one they are inspired by Al Qaeda, inspired by Islamic State, and uh, they uh, uh, perpetrate attacks in their own territory, even with no clear connection, at least uh, organically speaking, with the Islamic State. So these two waves of avatar really have been uh, primarily uh, in the in the European Union for the last 18 months. But also it's remarkable how the action of the European Union uh, city services are preventing many attacks to happen later in the 18 months. So I think we really uh, have uh, suffering strongly for terrorism. By the meantime, the reaction of the member states really have been remarkable, preventing many more to happen. What do you believe is the reason why they've been able to prevent these attacks? What's, what is helping them to get ahead of them? I think we are moving now in a more preventive way. I mean, we are now really enhancing the cooperation uh, going from bilateral to multilateral. We are now really the, uh, increasing the information exchange at uh, the member state level with, uh, with the other member state third parties, especially including Europol and other uh, multinational agencies on this specific area. And really they give us this the, the city authorities to spot earlier and in a more accurate way what are the people they are radicalized and eventually they can take actions. It's not 100% proof, but at least I think by this uh, moving forward to the information exchange, be more flexible on the way the information we use, then they are able to identify, take action and prevent many attacks to happen in the European Union. One of the things that I've heard from many of your colleagues over the last few years is that with so many foreign fighters returning, leaving Syria and Iraq, trying to go back to their homes, many of which are in Europe, it's absolutely impossible or close to impossible to, to manage to follow them, to keep track of all of them. And could you explain to us in your, from your perspective why that's so difficult? Well, in fact, to reduce to zero the possibility of somebody who has uh, this uh, uh, intention, this terrorist intention in mind, is, is really, really difficult. But I think that really but the member states, they are, are gathering information related to this individual, and they are setting a specific criteria for establishing what kind of risk they, uh, they can present to the community and taking action to mitigate having access to means or to somehow be connected to other person that eventually can uh, become more sophisticated and have a, a huge damage on, on any attacks. So it's almost, uh, it's quite difficult to identify this long actor phenomenon because they are quite unpredictable, but the member state, they are setting a specific criteria to understand how the phenomenon is developed, how will the uh, trigger let's say, the trigger uh, impulse, what is really uh, making people to, to move from being radicalized to be, uh, 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 to take action and uh, to prepare the terrorist attack, and also to identify what could be the connection that can really uh, make them a tip, uh, identify them to, to really take action to stop them before this happening. Do you have a general idea of how many of these types of suspects may be in Europe at this time? We assess that uh, about uh, 5,000 uh, uh, residents of, of European Union citizens, they, throughout the years, they went from uh, Europe to Syria and Iraq as a so-called foreign fighter, and they were integrated in different groups in Syria and Iraq, 
and we assess that one third they are already back in the European Union. Uh, but th this phenomenon is, is impacting differently on different member states. I mean, the, the big numbers are uh, in in France, but also Belgium, the UK, Germany. Also, they have some uh, figures about uh, foreign fighter returnees coming to their own mm -hmm. territory. But the profile, they are quite different. They are people they really are disengaged. The people they are frustrated for being a member of the Islamic State, but some of them, they still are active and really are a risk for the European Union security and, and the world. The, the Islamic State group leadership, those that are still left, seem to be saying, stay home, don't, mm -hmm. don't come anymore, yeah. stay home, and attack at home. What is their message to these people that they're trying to get to stay in Europe and other places to attack? Well, there is a, initially there was a call for from the Islamic State and other terrorist groups to come to Syria to join the the, the jihad that they call there uh, um, in Syria and Iraq. But I see as their as their action taking against them in Syria and Iraq is is, is more efficient, and the the uh, international coalition is moving forward, and they are losing territory. So I think they decide somehow to change the strategy and also to punish the, the countries. They are really uh, responsible for the strategy for the Islamic State losing territory and losing their domain uh, in Syria and Iraq. In the meantime, as uh, many of them, they were already, they are not capable to go into Syria and Iraq. I think they took advantage of this inability to go there to empower them and try to influence them to uh, to become a terrorist in their home country. So you don't need to come here to become a member of the Islamic State by doing whatever you can, by using whatever means is are you at disposal, but um, as far as you claim you are a member state, uh, a member of the, of the Islamic State, you are blessed by, by the Islamic State. Mm -hmm. So it was a I think it was a combination of uh, a situation in Syria and Iraq based on the coalition forces working uh, and striking uh, uh, Islamic State in this area, and also a window opportunity to somehow what is already happening to be a part of the Islamic State strategy in, for the member states and all the countries. Mm. Against the backdrop of what you've told us, what we know about what the Islamic State group and other terrorists are trying to achieve, what is the primary objective of the Counterterrorism Center? Number one is to help the member states on preventing attacks to happen. This means that we have to facilitate the information exchange and we have to provide all the possibility for the member states and third-party associates to spot as soon as possible the terrorists where they are coming to European Union territory or traveling abroad. So this identification part is essential to take any action at the member state level and also in cooperation with our partners. Second is we have to really bring a comprehensive picture on investigation taking place at the member state level. It's not anymore using all information related to terrorism. There are links to organized crime. There are possibility of financial intelligence. There are also possibility of cyber crime already experienced bringing to the European, to the, to the counter-terrorist domain that we can benefit from. So bringing the whole picture together in order to support the member state to provide with the accurate analytical possibility that we have in-house is my major challenge right now. And also really working against terrorism in, in, in two dimensions, online and offline.
we cannot just uh, disregard how the terrorists they are using the, uh, the social media to spread out the terrorist message, to use this for recruitment radicalization. We have to work together first at the member cell level to obtain the better information on this specific area to support investigation, but also work closely with the providers to make them aware how the terrorists they are abusing the platform. And many of them, they are really big cooperative. We have now at the European Union level, a European Union internet forum, but we have a permanent dialogue with the providers try to mitigate how the terrorists, they are abusing this platform. So it's essential this also the public-private partnership to combat terrorism. Mm -hmm. What is the most difficult part of the work that you have to do at the center? What is the hardest part when it comes to this big mandate that you have? Because mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a significant mandate, con especially considering the Islamic State is losing mm -hmm. its capital in, in Raqqa. It's already lost the one in Mosul. But what is the most difficult part of the work you have to do at the, at the center? I will say that uh, working with 28 member states plus 13 uh, uh, different third parties they associated to us, uh, with them really, uh, how do you put it this way, with really my challenge is to be faster. Mm. I think uh, we have seen how the terrorists became faster, how they easily assembled the means and eventually uh, uh, perpetrate the terrorist attacks, how it's essential to have this information available for the member states. Um, many of the time, the reaction is already expected. I mean, many of them, they don't have a plan to escape from the scene. They already just think about checking the means, whatever you have, explosive, a truck, a knife, kill somebody, and then wait for the police reaction. Mm -hmm. So working in this environment with 28 member states, about 13 third parties, working with all this bureaucracy sometimes of the information exchange, for me, being fast is my main dream to come through. I mean, my main dream is really to be flexible, to be agile, and to have all the information available and for the member state to be searchable 24-7. Now, considering what is happening in Europe right now, um, there have been three attacks in London, in the UK since 22 March. Uh, and we are hearing now about perhaps another in France, and there have been many other plots that have been foiled. Um, the speed with which the terrorists are coming up with these plots now, um, what, is, what, is, what is the next uh, step for you, uh, considering the speed with which they're coming with these attacks now? We try to identify especially the patterns of behavior. I mean, how that in this especially the spine terrorism, the long active phenomenon, what are the main factors they are behind it, and what is the, the position where they move forward into action. And um, because at the end is try to find any indication that they are moving forward into the violent phase and eventually to take action to prevent that. So still the phenomenon is quite unpredictable for us because i mean they are easily gathering in one single place and they are using no sophisticated means to perpetrate the attacks so these these make our uh, job more complicated the more sophisticated the more let's say um, uh, complex that you try to make a plan more time you need to prepare more night for communication more time you need to gather so the chances for the police and the intelligence to 
identify the situation and eventually take action, they are the greater. But when you have this uh, somehow inspiring phenomenon, it's, it's very fast and difficult to predict. But anyhow, um, by making them predictable, we can make them preventable. So still we are not there to 100% possibilities, but moving forward in this direction, I think we can make them at least more preventable. Do you think that there is a wave of terror going through Europe right now, um, or is this just coincidental? Well, I think we are suffering the consequences of the foreign terror fighter phenomenon since uh, 2013, 2014. These are the effects or what was somehow uh, prepared in 2013 and 2014. Mm -hmm. Also, these are somehow connected to the situation of the Islamic State is losing territory and power in Syria mm -hmm. and Iraq. So they have to show strength. They have to show they're still alive. So uh, somehow the impact of the situation right now in Europe is connected to, to Syria and Iraq, but this is the way they try to uh, respond to, 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 uh, to the action taken by, by, the, by, the, by the community to confront ISIS. So what I also uh, saw that there is a strong effort on propaganda coming from the Islamic State. So there is no just uh, by chance they are this happening right now. They invested a lot on propaganda. They invested a lot on providing the right message and also inciting people to take actions against the, uh, against the, the home countries. So I think it's part of the strategy of the Islamic State right now. I don't think it's just coincidentally we have too many attacks by chance. The United States. Give me an, an, some understanding of, of how the U.S. fits into your work and um, the relationship. Well, I think the, the European Union, the U.S., we are natural partners. I mean, I don't see any other scenario but cooperating with the U.S. I mean, there is, there is, this is out of the scope. I mean, uh, the U.S. Is, uh, is, is the first contributor to the European Union database regarding foreign fighters. We have a strong cooperation with all the agencies related to CT in, in, uh, in, in the U.S., I have uh, staff, I have uh, uh, special agents coming from FBI, from ICE, for different agencies, CBP, embedded inside my center, working on daily basis against terrorism. So I think that uh, trust and reliability and also engagement with the U.S. couldn't be stronger. We can improve in specific areas, as I mentioned at the beginning, but I think really the commitment from the, from the agency, the commitment from the authorities, couldn't be stronger. Is there one specific thing that the U.S. does best or better that's most important to Europol because, mm -hmm. or to the uh, center? Because I've heard a number of your colleagues say recently that the U.S. is very good at following the money. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm interested in what your thought is about what it is the U.S. does particularly well yeah. um, that makes it uh, an indispensable partner. Mm. Well, I think the two areas when really try to also bring some lessons learned from uh, U.S. to European Union. One is about uh, intelligence and police cooperation. I think after 9-11, after I see the cooperation between intelligence and the law enforcement have really increased and is a model for us to follow. At least it's something adapting to the European Union, let's say, dimension, but it's something that I think it could be very valuable for us to learn more from this model and how to 
replicate at the European Union level. And secondly, as you mentioned, is financial intelligence. I see. Uh, and also, besides financial intelligence, gathering information somehow that could be connected to any investigation, related to PNR or any system that we can uh, enrich the information that we have already on any specific investigation. I think the U.S. Has made a major effort of gathering information that could be relevant for terrorism, not only from the police uh, domain, but any area that eventually can help to set up, uh, uh, to identify a clear profile of terrorists, to identify me the methodology they use for the terrorist purpose, and bringing this to the European Union is something also we can learn from pretty much from the U.S. Is there something you would like to add that I haven't asked you about that you think is important today? Well, I think it's important that uh, uh, the cooperation between the U.S. and the European Union is, is reaching a, a peak on, on 2016. I think the commitment and the determination of the uh, U.S. agencies and also the, the agents that we have deployed in, inside the European Union, uh, in this case in Europol, and also the cooperation that we have really is essential for, for current and future uh, fighting against terrorism. So despite what is uh, any discussion that we have in, uh, in the present, I think that uh, operationally we are very healthy on the cooperation that we have right now and really determined to keep it this way. So you mean the, the reports that the two aren't cooperating well or getting along well, is that what you mean? Yeah, I think that uh, the way we cooperate, the, the trust that we build throughout the years and also how we know each other and how can we rely on each other, I really feel comfortable on the cooperation that we have right now. We can do better, but still we are doing uh, very good things today. Mr. Navaretti, I do appreciate your time and your excellent expertise on this and the way in which you explain these things to us, which help our, our audience. And thank you. Thank you very much. As we were talking with Mr. Navaretti, an attack took place in Paris. A man with a hammer attacked a police officer outside the Cathedral of Notre Dame. Another example of the intensifying terrorism climate in Europe and the work that Europol has to do to stay ahead of a burgeoning terror threat in Europe. That's it for this episode. Coming up on our next program, whether it's terrorism, anarchist, cyber criminals, nation states, intelligence, or the U.S.'s own counterintelligence drama that's playing out in the Congress. Join us on Target USA for the latest. Thank you for joining us, and please join us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's one word, Tango, Uniform, Sierra, Alpha Podcast. And let me know what you think at jgreen at WTOP.com. That's one word, J the color green at WTOP.com. That's whiskey tango Oscar Papa.com. I'm JJ Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, it's John Horn here. I'm the host of the new podcast that you need to subscribe to right now. It's called Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. And every week I chat about the creative process with stars who have roots and ties to theater. Who so far would you ask? Well, let me tell you, we have Rain Wilson, Neil Patrick Harris, Josh Gad, Dana Delaney, Brian Cranston, David Copperfield, Matt Walsh, and so many more yet to come. It's called Geffen Playhouse Unscripted with me, John Horn. You could download it on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe now on iTunes, or at podcastone.com.